this text is that zeal, excitement, without the wisdom of the Holy Spirit is utterly destructive. It's utterly destructive. And guess what? We see this sin on display in modern day America. Think about those pseudo-Christian cults who on one hand stand for something. They believe that uh, the Bible teaches pacifism, which means no war or anything. The Bible doesn't teach that, but they believe this, and what they do is they go and protest the funerals of veterans, calling themselves Christians under the name of religion. It's okay to stand up for what the Bible says, but it's not just what you stand for, it's how you reveal that message. So it's method and message, right? So their message is that the Bible teaches pacifism, wrong. And then their method was to protest funerals of veterans, wrong. That's not what we do. That's not in line with the hospitality and love of the Spirit. So their method and their message is absolutely, absolutely false. What about the people who care about evangelism so much, which is a good thing, and they stand on street corners with bullhorns screaming at people to repent or burn in hell, right? Their zeal for evangelism, that's a good thing but the method is all wrong. And even the message of screaming at somebody, we would say in seed form, they mean good, but not to parse it too far. Method and message is all a mess there. That's not what Christ is teaching, how we love our neighbors as ourselves. Who in the world wants to sit at lunch with somebody while they have a megaphone and they just yell at them about their day? Why in the world would we talk to Jesus, talk to people about Jesus that way? You see, this lacks the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, it's easy for us to be in here and kind of scoff at that and be like, yeah, that is pretty dumb. You know, method, message, I get that. This exists even with us today. It exists in a much more subtle in sneaky form. I'm gonna give several examples here, all right? Think about the way the church treats single people. I'm not talking about East, I'm talking about the church in general. Think about the way we treat single people. Now, at the core of this, we care about marriage. Christians care about marriage, right? That's a good thing. But you can really care about marriage but denigrate singles with comments that assume Christian behaviors. When you see a person show up to an event, we have these little subtle questions like, where's your spouse? Oh, you just, you, you here alone? Oh, you, 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 you don't want, you dating? You dating anybody? You how old? Oh, uh, you want, you looking for somebody? And you see the fishing the fishing, what does that make a single person feel like? It's destructive. It's destructive. You can have a zeal for the beauty of marriage and simultaneously crush a single person who for none of our business is at an event alone. They might be single. They might be divorced. They might be widowed. They might have kids outside of marriage. They might have been called to be single, right? 
but we don't need to lead with interrogation. We just talk to people and let them open up at their own pace. We do the same thing with kids. We see a couple together. We love children. If you're a Christian, I think it's necessary that you love children, right? And you see a couple together and it's like, y'all married? Oh, yeah, awesome. How many years? Oh, six months. You got kids yet? You working? Well, thank you for asking me about my sex life, but no, we don't have kids yet. Well, do y'all want kids? And then if you have a kid, you have one. Hey, you got more than one? Oh, just one? Two? Just two? Three? And then it starts to get into this uncomfortable ground where they have four or more, and then it starts to hit the other threshold. They're like, four? Five? Five kids? Are y'all one of those colonial reenactment families? Is that what y'all are doing? You see, it's funny, but think about what all this is implying. It's, it's getting into people's business without knowing their story or what's going on. We can value kids, but disregard the families. I'm trying to say this without tears. One in four women suffer infertility. One in four. Not just from the inability to get pregnant, but from miscarriage. And from losing children. This is personal for me. We've experienced this as a couple, not at East necessarily, but we are close friends with people who've had miscarriages. And this is brutal. This is brutal. And I know people don't intend it to be this way. But we can have zeal without wisdom and we can crush people. Think about the couples who've had children die. And they show up and, yeah, we used to have two or three. There was an accident. What about those people? What about people who actually desire to have six or seven kids? And we don't treat them like they're Amish or like they want to do reenactments in colonial times. Right? It's okay to have zeal, and it's okay to love families and kids, but remember the method. Remember the method of how you talk to people about stuff. Last one. This is a little bit lighter, all right? So think about the times when you're, you're in community group or you're at coffee with somebody, and, and you ask, you really ask, how are things going, and you've created safety, you've shared a little bit of your life, they've shared a little bit of theirs, and they're going through a tough time, and they share suffering, some real deep suffering. And in those moments where you may have not experienced this a lot, you may have not even experienced a lot of suffering in your life, that's not a bad thing. But in those moments where you're just, you feel like you can cut the suffering in the, in the, in the environment with a knife, where you can feel the sadness in those moments and you just don't know what to do, you just tee up a Christian platitude off the tee and just knock it out of the park. Yep, yep, yep. Well, God works all things together for those who are trusting according to his purpose. It's gonna be great. Cheer up. 
you just, you don't know what to do with the awkwardness. Maybe they're crying in front of you like I am, and you're just like, oh, you gotta stop, right? It's hard to feel that with other people. And if you're not used to it, if you're not uh, seasoned in suffering and, and walking through suffering with people, we can do some pretty destructive things. So not only do we do Christian platitudes, you may have experienced this when you go through suffering. Someone shares something horrible, and then you don't know what to do, so then you try to monopolize the suffering to bring the attention back to you to get the person to stop, so you share your own version of suffering. Yeah, that, that loss is horrible. That diagnosis is horrible, and, and sadness, yes, sadness. I know sadness. One time, I was at True Food in the town center, and I spilled sparkling water on my loafers. And it got all over my monogrammed polka dot socks. And I had to go back to the office with soaking wet socks. I know exactly what you mean in the middle of your suffering. It's painful. It's hard to sit in moments and just listen. To weep with those who weep sometimes. To, to let the fruit of the Spirit, to let Christ just move in you and just let you sit and be quiet and be slow to speak and quick to think. Y'all, I can preach about this because I fail at this regularly. It's so easy to just wanna fix something and move on, but all, a lot of times God is just calling you to just be there with big shoulders and just sit and let somebody weep with you and say, that's so painful. That's so painful. I'm so sorry. That's what loving your neighbor looks like. The million-dollar question is, how in the world do we break free from this? How do we break free from this zeal without the wisdom of the Spirit? We need the light of Jesus to shine on us and in us. Look at verses 6 and 7. A great light shone from heaven suddenly and shone around me, and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Think about where Paul is in this story. Paul is on his way to kill more Christians he has zealously laid his killing instruments out. He is ready to go. I'm gonna lock them up. I've shined up my chains. I'm gonna get me some Christians today. And Jesus broke into this cycle of evil and zeal and darkness and completely blinded him physically. And the irony is his physical blinding opened up an internal awakeness. He was blind physically, but for the first time, he could actually see. This means that the light of the world has to change us internally. We need an internal illumination of the Spirit. And this reminds us of a quote by A.W. Tozer. Listen to this. It says, religious instruction, however sound, is not enough by itself. It brings light, but it cannot impart sight. The assumption that light and sight are synonymous has brought spiritual tragedy to millions, and I would even guess some of you in here today. 
The Pharisees looked straight at the light of the world for three years, but not one ray of light reached their inner beings. Light is not enough. The inward operation of the Holy Spirit is necessary to saving faith. The gospel is light, but only the Spirit can give sight. You see, this external light, blinding light, that overwhelmed and bombarded Paul, illumined inside of him by the Spirit to bring conversion to his dark heart. The question then is, has this happened to you? Has your heart been illuminated by the power of Christ? Do you understand that you need a Savior? If it hasn't, if that light hasn't occurred to you, if you haven't had that light bulb moment of the beauty and also the torture of Christ to die on your behalf, I pray today would be the day that you would see that light and would turn to him and not run from it. For those of you trusting in Jesus today, but recognize you may have been the person who has hurt someone, not on purpose, uh, because you had a hard time showing empathy. You, you inadvertently hurt someone. If that's you, I pray that you would ask God for forgiveness. Ask him for wisdom the next time you're in that situation. Ask him for grace. Because if you're living in Christian community, you will be in that situation again. The only way to avoid that situation as a Christian is to live life as a hermit. And that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is relational. It's with people. It's in community. You will have plenty of time to sharpen your skills here. I promise you, you will fail at this over and over, and you will have success in this. But pray that God would give you wisdom in that moment and know when to speak, know what to say, because timing is everything. Also, I can't say it thus saith the Lord. I kinda can, but I can't, I can't, because I don't know the exact situation. If you have hurt somebody, and I don't care if this was 15, 20 years ago, if this has happened to you, pray about the possibility of reaching out to that person. And just saying, this happened a long time ago, you might not even remember it, they might have, and just go and ask for forgiveness. I didn't love you well here, will you forgive me? Before I was a Christian, I left a wake of relational destruction in my path, and after coming to Christ, one of my best friends was like, you need to go on a phone call tour and start apologizing to everybody. And this was years that I, later that I had met these people and interacted with them and been in their lives, and I called and said, I'm so sorry. I treated you horribly. And I got a range of things like, oh, that's silly, I don't even remember it too. I hated you to this moment. You have ruined my life and created lifelong scars in me. I absolutely hate you. We can't control how people respond, ever. But what we can control is how we take the way people respond to us. And as people who have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus, our very worldview dictates that we live as agents of reconciliation as far as it depends upon us to make this world right when we have done wrong. You can't control people's responses, 
but at least you can go and try to make peace. So I encourage you to, to pray through that. Life is clumsy. It is. We are people who have been hurt. We hurt people. But the light of Christ brings clarity. Bring everything to the light. So we asked, what does Christ's blinding light look like for us today? We first saw conversion. And lastly, we're gonna see that this blinding light brings calling. So conversion and calling. And we see this calling from verses 12 through 21. Paul is now blind at this point. Ananias, he is a Jewish convert. He's well thought of. He comes to him and tells him what God has done. Look at verses 14 through 16. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, you'll see what followed Paul's conversion as he's giving this defense is he's also sharing his calling. Jesus confirmed this calling in verse 21. He says, go, for I will send you to the Gentiles. What we're to take away from this is recognizing the sequence. Do y'all see the sequence here? You see, once you have been brought to the John 8 light of the world, and you really understand what Jesus has done for you, he took the weight of all of your sin, the punishment that you deserve. He bore hell in space and time on the cross. He did that for you. He screamed, Father, why are you forsaking me for you? And he paid for it willingly and welcomes you into his family by no merits of your own, but through faith. Once you get that, and that light starts to uh, flush the darkness out of you, what tends to happen is you want to share this light with other people. Jesus confirmed that this would be the trajectory of the Christian life. Look at Matthew 5, 14 and 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You'll notice what Paul is experiencing is this normal trajectory of what Jesus has already said that Christians will experience. Once the Spirit brings light to you through conversion, the Spirit then works in you to shine to other people. Now, Paul was called to be an apostle. He's a mouthpiece for God. When he speaks, it says, though God is speaking, that's not our calling, thank God. But we have the exact same message and we have the exact same method that Paul is called to. Look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, meaning followers, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, what? I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, as Christians, we are lights whose light source is the Spirit of God. And when we live as lights in this world, people will start to ask, what's different about you? Why do you do that thing 
Why did you respond this way? Why do you say that? Why do you do that? And that's your opportunity to share where the source of your light comes from, and then you can point them to your heavenly Father. Now, you might be saying, well, how in the world do I do that? Can you give me a teaching pamphlet, booklet to do, do, do? No, if it quacks and water runs off of its back and flaps its wings, it's a duck, right? Just be a Christian. You don't have to artificially manufacture this light What you're called to do is battle back against your sins to remove the dimness to make your light even brighter. Well, how do I do that? Well, you don't do that in and of yourself. The power of the Spirit works through you, shines through you, and gives you the power to fight back against your sins because in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a son and daughter of righteousness. Nothing has control over you anymore but the cross and the blood of Christ. You've got power. This power was seen in the life of St. Augustine. Uh, Well, St. Augustine, we're in Florida. We call it St. Augustine. He was a theologian from way back in the day. Prior to Jesus, he had a mistress, a paramour. He had a lover. He had an extramarital affair, and he was wrecking his family with it. Christ saved him, gave him a calling, brought light into his life, and he was walking down the street one day, and out, uh, out of the side of the street, he heard, uh, Augustine, Augustine. I'm not gonna do the girl's voice, but y'all get it. Augustine, Augustine. It is I, it is I, Claudia, Augustine. And he crosses the street, doesn't look at her, and keeps walking. She's running, following him, right? Because the affair, the person in the affair is the thirstiest the most, right? And they're just chasing, right? Going, follow, Augustine. It is I, Claudia, and he says, but it is not I, Augustine. He had been brought from death to life. He had grown from darkness to light. And he knew he had a calling, and it was not this former life, and he moved forward. The question is, what does it look like to be uh, a light? What is your calling today? What does this calling on your life look like today? Well, just like Paul, you have a story. It's unique. It's full of highs and lows. Your lineage as a Christian isn't from uh, some sort of superhero Christians. You share the lineage with murderers. You share the lineage with scoundrels. You share the lineage with thieves. This is our legacy, made new by Christ. Your story, as messed up as it could possibly be, is just in line with what God is doing. He comes to save the sick and the lost, not the healthy. Your story is powerful. It's unique. And God is going to use it to reach people like you and to reach people the opposite of you. God's gonna use you right where he has you and right where you are is no accident. Take your current occupation, your student, work from home, work outside the home, wherever you work, whatever you do, you were called to be a missionary right there. You are not promised tomorrow. So right where God has you today, he expects you to live like light for him, shining it on those who are around you because you know your story, you know what God's done to save you. And then the method is, the message, and then the method is just loving people like Jesus has loved you. 
You're built with your own personality, skill set, likes, dislikes. All this is on purpose. You're not an accident. Nothing that's ever happened to you is random. God's going to use it, redeem it, push the darkness away, and he's gonna use you as light to reach other folks. Here's the kicker. Don't assume that people are okay just because they visibly aren't showing signs of distress. Don't assume people are okay because they're not physically frazzled. One of the greatest survival mechanisms we have as humans is to be able to take trauma and suffering and bottle that noise, compartmentalize it, avoid it with hobbies, interests, religion, work, habits. We bottle all of our trauma and we move on like nothing's ever happened to us. What's the most common phrase we use today? Hey, how's it going? Great, and we're on our way. We're really good at this. You never know how living as a light for Jesus, opening up your life, sharing your story, loving people, you never know how God's going to use that to reach someone else. When you are vulnerable with other people because you are strong in Christ, you're creating a wonderful room for people to come in and come and meet Jesus with you. You are creating a space where people can come and feel the love of Christ. When you realize life isn't about you anymore, you don't need to build walls to protect yourself. You don't need to abandon your story or tweak your story or, or run from it thinking that God can't use you. When you realize that everything that's happened to you has already passed through, nail-pierced hands, I say that all the time, when you get that, you will shine so bright for Christ and you will love the unlovable so well. And I pray that this is the story of our church for every single one of you who join us in our mission. This reminds me of the story of Sarah Parsucci. Last February, she received a letter in her mailbox that was full of exclamation points. It was full of caps lock. And one of the neighbors in her neighborhood was very, very mad at her that it was now February and she still had Christmas lights up on her house. The letter said this, really, really poignant, all right? Where is it? Take your Christmas lights down, it's Valentine's Day, right? I could have memorized that, but it's for, <laughs> it's for effect. Sarah said this letter hit especially hard, especially hard that February because her father put up those lights in December and he died in January. Then a week later, her aunt died. And for the last several months, they've been going through the trauma and the sadness and the grief, uh, planning funerals. If you've never done that in the, in the wake of the death of a loved one, it's so, so hard. Covering all these expenses, figuring out where all their bills and debt need to go. They've spent the last several months doing that. The last thing on their mind was Christmas lights. It also reminded her of her dad. 
she commented on the letter. She says this, it was a major blow to the heart. No one really knows what's going on inside the house or why we didn't take down the decorations. She posted on their neighborhood Facebook group. She posted an apology because this wonderfully written letter was written, of course, with no name or subject. Um, and it said this, she wrote this apology letter. The family has been preoccupied with funeral arrangements, mortgage and utility payments, and just the grieving process of it all. So yes, we haven't gotten around to taking down his Christmas decorations. Be kind to people because you never know what they're going through. Within minutes of posting this to their Facebook group in their neighborhood, they were flooded with messages. They were flooded with uh, prayers and people concerned about them. But one couple in their neighborhood was Christians. And this couple took it upon themselves to rally the entire neighborhood, started a GoFundMe, covered all the funeral costs, covered all the debts that were left from her father. Not only that, but they started a meal train and had them fed for over a month, and then they took it one step further. This couple convinced all of their neighbors to go into their attic and put Christmas lights back up on their house. And in February, in the middle of the night, you could see that entire street lit up with little tiny sparkling lights with this entire neighborhood showing love for their grieving neighbor. Church, that is what it looks like to live on mission. Where your message and your method unite. And your tiny little sparkling lights that you think are insignificant join together as a church body and you shine like a light on the hill and everyone sees that something is different. People in America have heard of church for hundreds of years, but when churches and the people that comprise those churches start living like this, it will change the world. It will change the world. If Christ's light shines in y'all, hear Ananias' words in verse 16. Hear this call from Ananias. And now why do you wait? Why do we wait? Some of you might be called to foreign missions and that's awesome. But before you get to that point, you've got a mission field in your home. You've got a mission field in your workplace, in your classroom. You've got a mission field right where you work and right where you live. You're not promised tomorrow and Christ calls us to be his light right where we are. We are not called to manipulate and change the circumstances that we're around. Look at Paul. But we are to shine right where he has us, right where he has you to love the unlovable, to bring light into darkness, because that was you, that was me. So go, go imperfectly love. I said imperfectly, we are not going to love people perfectly. We are gonna fail, we're gonna mess up, we're gonna try to do good, and our method and our message is gonna collide, it's gonna be a mess. We're gonna hurt people, but we're gonna repent. 
We're gonna be models of what grace looks like. We're gonna be quick to ask for forgiveness and we're going to love the unlovable. Open your heart. Embrace the sadness and brokenness that's around you. Embrace the sadness and brokenness of people that are around you. Bring your light into that situation. Open your home to other people. Welcome them in. Don't yell at them on a street corner. Bring them to your house. Go to their house. You don't do this to earn God's love. This is not you earning your way to heaven. This is the way of saying heaven has come down to earth. It's broken through, and I'm gonna love the world as a result of it. Shine, church. Shine like Christ has shown in you. Shine that light on other people in a loving way and patiently pray for other people's conversions and their calling. Let's pray. Father, you are the light. We only have any sort of derivative light because of your spirit who lives in us. That's only possible because of the resurrection. And Jesus, with the power of the spirit that raised you from the dead, be very present in our lives. That would, would you be present in our church? Would you be present with us constantly as we go and do the arduous task of loving a broken world, of repenting from our sins, of being reconcilers of your faith and of your love in this broken world? Would we live as light, not as to condemn others, Father, but to love our neighbors as ourselves? Father, this is hard. The light drives out darkness. There's already pain in that. Help us to be patient with those who are suffering. Help us to be patient with those who are coming to faith. Help us to be patient with those who are in our lives, whether they're children or they're adults that are children like me. Father, give us patience. Lord, uh, in the midst of it all, help us to rejoice, knowing that our work is not in vain, that our work and our love of others is guaranteed because you will save your church. You will save your people and help us to live out of that joy and excitement for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.